grace orientation is all about. I keep thinking, I'm going to be so glad when this move is over with. It's almost on a weekly basis, I think. You know, I have something really good that I need to go to about this passage. And that's in storage somewhere. So I'm looking forward to some someday in the next couple of months finally getting everything out. Well, before we get started, we need to make sure that we are indeed in fellowship and ready to study God's Word and learn what God has to say for us. And this is accomplished simply by following the procedure of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's pure grace. Nothing on our behalf uh, gains the merit of God. We don't have to convince Him we'll never do it again. We don't have to feel sorry for our sins. We don't have to go through any kinds of uh, emotional hoops in order to uh, gain and acquire God's forgiveness. The cross paid the price for all of our sins. The issue now is simply admission, acknowledgement of our sins to God the Father, and He promises that at that moment, instantly, we are forgiven and our sins are removed as far from us as the East is from the West. So let's bow our heads together and begin in prayer. Father, we do thank You. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer before we begin. Father, we thank You for this time to study Your Word now as we look at it and are encouraged in the way we handle the problems and adversities in our lives through the application of Your Word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us, that we might apply them in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I think it's been longer than that now, I received a copy of a speech made by the Commandant of the Marine Corps at the commencement remarks for the Uniformed Services University at the DAR Constitution Hall on Washington, in Washington, D.C. on 16 May 1998. And as I read this, I would, couldn't help but think about the subject we've been discussing the last few weeks. We're in James chapter 1. Just to orient you, James chapter 1 talks about trials and testing and how we as believers can handle the trials and tests in our life. There are various problem-solving techniques or devices that God has outlined in His Scripture, what I call stress busters. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Adversity is what circumstances do to us Stress is how is what we do to ourselves. Stress is our volition. We have the option of either applying God's word and removing stress, or not applying God's word and converting the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. One of the stress busters is grace orientation, orienting our lives to the grace of God and then dealing with people and issues on a grace basis. Part of grace orientation is the mastery of the details of life, and that involves humility. And that was the subject in verses 9 through 11. And this 
particular speech seemed to exemplify what the scriptures teach about what humility and grace orientation are all about. Let me read it to you. Thank you, Admiral Zimbel, for that very kind introduction. First, let me say what a pleasure and an honor it is for me to be here this morning. Like most of you in the audience, I too have a loved one that is graduating today, and I too feel that overwhelming sense of pride from seeing a person I cherish garner such a high achievement. I am also honored to address the future leaders, researchers, and healers of the medical profession. The graduates of the F. Edward Hebert School of Medicine, the Graduate School of Nursing, and the Graduate School of Medicine, and it is to these men and women that I would like to speak for the next few minutes. Last month, I had the opportunity to visit the island of Iwo Jima, known to the Japanese as Sulphur Island. It is a hot, bubbling volcanic atoll that to this day still has active sulphur vents. During February and March 1945, it was the scene of one of the most horrific battles of World War II. And Dave can tell us something about that. And my father was a Marine in the first wave on Iwo Jima. During the 36-day campaign to take that island, a Marine fell to Japanese fire every two minutes. Every two minutes for 36 days, a Marine was killed or wounded. It was the only battle in the history of our Corps where Marines suffered more casualties than the enemy. Today, the island still bears the scars of that titanic struggle. It is a place heavy with history and long on memories. The winds that constantly blow across the black sands of the Iwo Jima beaches seem at times to carry the voices of the warriors that fought there so long ago. It is a mournful and reverent place. Joining me on that tortured ground was the family of the late John Bradley. They had never been there before, and they wanted to see where their husband and their father had fought. John Bradley, who survived the battle, rarely spoke to his family about his experiences on Iwo Jima. When pressed, he would gloss over and downplay how he had won the nation's second highest award for bravery, the Navy Cross. He earned that decoration by rushing to the aid of two wounded Marines and then shielding them with his body while he tended to their wounds. When Bradley hurried to their aid, he didn't exactly rush. He crawled. Crawled because he had been shot through both legs just a few minutes before. Another reason the Bradley family wanted to visit Iwo Jima was because they wanted to see the site of the most famous battle photograph ever taken, the raising of the American flag on Mount Suribachi. That memorable event, captured in a bronze and granite sculpture, is known today as the Marine Corps War Memorial. Five Marines and one Navy corpsman took part in that flag raising. Three did not survive the battle. The Navy corpsman did. And as you have probably guessed, his name was pharmacist mate, second class, John Bradley. Let me encourage you to visit the war memorial one day. Run your hands across the cool granite. Step back and read the engraved words where uncommon valor was a common virtue. And then let your eyes travel up to the sculptured figures, young men forever captured in bronze. Look for Corman John Bradley you'll recognize him. He's the one with the empty canteen pouch. You see, prior to climbing Mount Suribachi, he gave the last of his water to a dying Marine on hot, bubbling 
Sulphur Island. John Bradley would go the next 24 hours without water. What I want to talk to you about today goes beyond bravery, goes beyond sacrifice. I want to talk to you about selflessness. See, that's grace orientation. John Bradley was a brave man and he sacrificed greatly. But most of all, he was selfless. His brave acts were not done for any reward, nor were they intended to be captured by Newscam 4 or CNN. There was no public glory in what he did. In fact, men under fire rarely speak of glory. Instead, they speak of who can be counted upon and who cannot. Above all, they speak about and remember the small individual acts of selflessness. When Felix de Weldon, the sculptor of the Marine Corps War Memorial, asked John Bradley what had happened to his canteen, John couldn't even remember. In the heat of battle, he had completely forgotten. But the surviving Marines of Bradley's unit knew, and they remembered. And they told de Weldon the story of his sharing his water. Selflessness is unforgettable. Even small acts of selflessness are unforgettable. Today when you leave, you will find yourself placed in positions of great responsibility. You will be men and women of letters and possess a special and unique educational experience. That alone will cause the mantle of responsibility to be thrust upon you. And because of who and what you are, you must don the mantle of responsibility. With responsibility comes many challenges. These challenges normally are translated into choices. A choice to operate, a choice for therapy, a choice to do nothing. But all, of all the choices you will face, there is none greater than the choice between self or selflessness. Is the benefit for you or is it for your team or your patient or your clinic or your family? Over the chapel doors at the United States Naval Academy is a simple Latin inscription, Non Sibi Sed Patria, not for self but for country. Simple but powerful. Selflessness takes time to develop. Rarely does a man or woman suddenly grow a brain and a spine in the middle of an operating room or on a battlefield. Likewise, rarely does a person develop a sense of selflessness in a single moment in time. Spontaneous selfless acts rarely happen. Instead, they are built on a strong moral foundation and then carefully layered by doing the right thing time and time again. See, that's what we're talking about in James. It's persistence. It's applying doctrine over and over again. That's how you build the character of Christ-likeness. And grace orientation is built on humility, which is selflessness. He goes on to say, All of you possess a strong character, strong morals, and a strong sense of duty. Let me encourage you to add to those strengths a spirit of selflessness. That spirit is within you now. Draw from it, use it, and encourage it from others. Use it to lead, to build your team, and to serve those you know and those you know not. John Bradley gave the last of his water to a wounded Marine on 23 February 1945. That afternoon, he was struggling to climb the fire-swept heights of Mount Suribachi. The next day, he braved enemy fire to aid two wounded Marines, and just a few days later, though wounded himself, he again braved enemy fire to aid two more Marines. It was not for sense of self that he performed those brave deeds. It was for others, for those he knew and for those he knew not. Deep within his soul, John Bradley instinctively understood non sibi sed patriae. It is contagious. 
After aiding those final two wounded Marines, Corpsman John Bradley, badly wounded, lost consciousness. He awoke 36 hours later aboard the hospital ship USS Solace. How he arrived there is unknown. The names of those Marines and sailors that carried him off the fire-swept field of battle, who placed him on the small boat, who carried him to the ship, have been lost. Have been lost to history. Only their selfless deed remains. Even small acts of selflessness are unforgettable. I don't know if that man was a believer or not, but certainly within an establishment realm, there is the principle of humility. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an even greater example of humility, and that is the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up heaven for the task of submitting himself to the Father's will to go to the cross and die as a substitute for us. That's the beginning of grace orientation, is to understand selflessness, putting God's will before our will. And if we're ever going to handle the adversities in life, it's got to start with understanding some things about humility, selflessness, and grace orientation. That's our subject. So turn to James 1.12, and we will continue our study of handling and facing adversity through stress busters. We began this verse last week. It reads, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. And this particular thought echoes that which James began in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So James returns to this theme, and he begins with the Greek word makarios, M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S, which has as its basic meaning the concept of happiness, not the happiness of the world, which is based on people, things, and events going the way we want them to. This relates to an inner, a deep, abiding inner happiness that goes far beyond any emotion. It may have an emotional consequence of exhilaration and excitement and ecstatics, but it may not. It may simply manifest itself in terms of contentment and tranquility. No matter what the storms of life may bring, we rest in the middle of them calm and relaxed like the in the eye of a hurricane relaxed because our focus is not on things circumstances or events but they are on the Lord who is in control of all circumstances and events blessing has many different meanings we said last week it means different things to different people but the focus of the scripture is that it is always related to doctrine I can't help when I think about the word blessed, I can't help but think about the first psalm. Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Notice it defines first negatively what he is not. That the blessed is the man who does not do certain things. And there is a progression there from walking in the counsel of the wicked, to standing in the path of sinners, to finally just sitting in depth of carnality, sitting in the seat of scoffers. In contrast to that, the blessed man 
has doctrine as his highest priority. He delights in the law of the Lord. This is what thrills him deep in his soul, week in and week out, is being able to go to the Scriptures and learn what God has to say to him. This is a person who who hungers and thirsts for the Word of God, who does not look upon Bible classes as just something else he has to squeeze into a busy schedule, but as the reason he has a schedule at all is so that he can learn what God has to say to him so that he can live his life in response to God whose grace has been magnificently bestowed upon him. His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. And the result is productivity, what James would call endurance and maturity. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit, yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. So, James talks about the blessed man, the happy man, and he is the one who perseveres under trial. We come to this word again, hupon monet. Here it is the uh, verb form, hupomeno, H-U-P-O-M-E-N-O. We have the present active indicative, which means to endure, to persist, to keep going, uh, to not give up, especially in times of difficulty. It literally comes from the combination of two words, to remain, meno, to remain, and hupa, under, to remain under, to stay under a pressure situation without caving in to the internal temptation to use sin or human viewpoint rationales to somehow avoid or lessen the pressure and cave in to sin nature control. Hupomeno means to persist, to hang in there, to not give up, to continue to apply doctrine moment by moment, no matter how difficult it might seem. Blessed is a man who perseveres or who persists under trial. And here we have the word that we have seen many times before, pyrosmos, P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-S. And it has two meanings. One is an objective sense and one is a subjective sense. In the objective sense, this relates to the baiting like someone would bait a trap. I'll return to that analogy when we get into the next two or three verses. You put a trap out. If you go out into the woods and you're trapping for an animal, then you set the trap and you put a bait in the trap, something that is attractive to the animal you're, you're trying to catch. That is the objective sense of test or temptation. The subjective sense is the inner attraction, the inner draw to that outer bait. This is very objective. You can offer someone the bait, offer someone the opportunity to sin, put them under a certain amount of pressure so that they may want to go in a particular direction. But the subjective sense is the sense in which they are internally drawn or attracted to that bait. Sometimes you can put something in front of somebody or offer them something or bait a trap and it doesn't attract anyone because it's not very attractive to the person who comes along. So, 
have these two categories. This is the external. This is the internal. Externally, we have we come under adversity or outside pressure from three sources. The temptation or testing comes from one of three sources. Externally, first of all, living in the cosmic system. Now, what is the cosmic system? This comes from the Greek word cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. Now, the Greek word cosmos had to do with a very orderly system. The root word of this word is where we get the English word cosmetics. A woman will talk about putting her face in order. And that's the root meaning there is to organize her looks so that she is more attractive. Cosmos has to do with an orderly system. And the head of the, the cosmic system is Satan. So the cosmic system promotes all of Satan's values and ideals. And Satan's systems are not always what we think of in terms of malignant evil. Perhaps Satan's greatest tool is religion and morality. Because nothing distracts people further from the truth of God's word than religion and morality. Because religion and morality emphasize human merit. Religion is the idea that man does the work and then God blesses him. That's the idea in religion. Religion, the world religions are various systems that seek to promote human ability and human effort and human good in such a way that God is impressed with human sincerity and all of the various things that man can do. And so through, through religious activity, through rituals, through giving, through prayer, through all kinds of religious activities, uh, people think that they're going to uh, somehow, somehow impress God and gain the approval or approbation of God. So that's, but the religious, this cosmic system then is the entire system of Satan's rule on planet Earth. And right now we know from the scriptures that he is the prince and the power of the air and that he is the god of this age and the ruler of this age. These are titles that the scripture applies to Satan. So right now we're living in the devil's world and the cosmic system is the system that Satan promotes in order to try to, to, try to gain control of planet Earth. That's the cosmic system. And so just because we live in the cosmic system, we know that governments are going to fail, government leaders are going to fail, and all sorts of things are going to go contrary to the way we think they ought to go based on the Word of God. And because we're living in the cosmic system, there's going to be a certain overflow of evil and adversity in our direction. There are going to be uh, climatological problems. Climatological problems such as hurricanes and tornadoes and freezes and blizzards and all kinds of things like that. Simply because we're living in the cosmic, cosmic system, there are going to be famines. There are going to be wars. There's going to be criminality. There's going to be all sorts of other problems that just relate to the fact that we live in the cosmic system. Secondly, 
we go one step further beyond the cosmic system, we have to deal with unbelievers and with carnal believers who are operating on human viewpoint and cosmic ideology. And because they are making decisions based on socialism, communism, atheism, uh, Gnosticism, any all kinds of other isms that are contrary to God's word that we're going to get involved or <clears throat> feel the backlash of all sorts of human viewpoint systems in our life because they've made bad decisions based on uh, human viewpoint. Third, we have to, because we live with or in close association with carnal believers and they're going to be under divine discipline, we're going to undergo a certain amount of adversity simply because as God is disciplining them, we will come under a certain amount of suffering by association. So overflow suffering. And the fourth is that if you live under a na- in a nation that is under divine discipline, then you will also undergo a certain amount of adversity and trouble that has nothing to do with your own personal behavior. This, this can all, all of this relates to outside pressure, adversity, or the or test, which provide us opportunities to choose to apply Bible doctrine. One example that I want to go to, blessed is a man who perseveres or endures under testing. How do, I want to ask the question, how do we as believers persist in the midst of testing? Turn to Matthew 4.1 for one example, and an important example that the, our Lord gives us in Matthew 4.1. This is at the beginning of our Lord's ministry. We have seen in our study of John, the Gospel of John, that Jesus' public ministry began with the baptism uh, of Jesus, which was a unique baptism, where Jesus submitted himself to the plan that the Father had for him and was identifying himself with that plan, and that's the purpose of John's baptism. The basic meaning of baptism is identification. So at that moment... uh, that Jesus is baptized, he is, his ministry is authenticated verbally by God the Father who says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, and by God the Holy Spirit who in the form of a dove descends upon the head of Jesus Christ, signifying that he was empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Then what happens immediately after that is what we discover in John, I mean in Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, that's our same word again, to be tested by the devil. Now, when we are tested, our testing comes from one of three sources. Number one, it comes from Satan. Satan is the enemy of God and in opposition to everything that God is planning to do on in planet earth and all of God's plans for redeeming mankind and Satan is the enemy of God and the enemy of every single believer 
And Satan, while he is not omniscient and cannot run around chasing every believer, there's a lot of people who in their foolishness talk about how Satan is after them and Satan is doing this to them and that to them. If they're talking about Satan personally doing that, then they, they don't understand Satan very well. But in terms of Satan as the ultimate head of an entire array of demons and these fallen angels who are carrying out Satan's task, and part of that is to destroy the witness of believers in the church age in the angelic conflict, then in some sense that might be true, although we attribute to Satan a tremendous amount that is just the result of people's sin nature. The sin nature that you possess and that I possess is the same quality of evil, is capable of the same quality of evil that Satan's sin nature and the demon's sin nature is capable of. Sin is sinful. Sin is highly evil and wicked. There is no difference in quality between the depravity of a human sin nature and the angelic sin nature. The only difference is angelic creatures have much more power and capability than you or I have. And so they're able to do a lot more than we are, than any human being is capable of doing. But so often you hear people say that someone like Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or, or Stalin or Jeffrey Dahmer or some human being who commits horrible, atrocious, vicious crimes, that they must be demon-possessed. And my response to that is that's not necessary because the human sin nature is capable of being hideously evil and wicked and is capable of doing much worse than we've ever seen on planet Earth. Now, it's very possible that some of those people may be demon-possessed, but it's not necessary. The, the root assumption that a lot of people have is man's basically good and he really wouldn't be that bad unless he had some help. And the picture of Scripture is no, man really is inherently evil. He is not inherently good. He is inherently evil. He is born with a sin nature. He is, has Adam's original sin imputed to him at the moment of birth. And he is exceedingly sinful from the moment he takes his first breath. So the first enemy is Satan and all of his demon armies that carry out his wishes. The second is the world system, the cosmic system. And this is, promotes all of Satan's ideas and philosophies and religions in order to gain control of planet Earth and to bring order into it. There's a wonderful quote, which I did not bring with me tonight, from Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology, where Chafer makes a brilliant observation that perhaps all of the violence and war and misery on planet Earth is not so much a testimony to the wickedness of Satan as to his impotence. Because that's one of the greatest testimonies against Satan's ability to run planet Earth. Satan wants to promote a utopic society. He wants a perfect environment. He wants to be God and to show that he can run planet Earth just as well as God can. And the problem is he has five billion people with their own sin natures on planet Earth who each think they can run the planet as well as God can. And so he can't bring order into the system. So all of the devastation that we see is not so much a testimony of the wickedness of Satan as to the exceeding sinfulness of mankind. 
And this is the world system. All of the philosophies, all of the ideas, all the ideologies, all of the isms that we find in the world that are contrary to God's word. Satan uses the world system to create all sorts of rationales and arguments to convince people that human viewpoint provides the best solution. That God's solution is difficult and it's not necessary and frankly it really doesn't work. Doctrine doesn't work. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that. And 99.9% of the time I can tell you that the reason the doctrine doesn't work for them is because they were never really trying it. They were distracted, they were confused, they never understood it. And the other small percentage I don't know well enough to say. The problem is that doctrine always works. We don't work. People usually, when I hear people say that, either they've never tried applying it, or, and this is probably that one small percentage, they don't really understand it. When you start talking to them and say, okay, now explain to me what what this doctrine relates to. Explain how God works in this arena. And you sit back and you say, have you really been listening to the same doctrine that I've been listening to? A lot of you are nodding your heads. You know people like that. There's Satan, and he operates through the world system. And then the greatest problem of all is not one of the two external enemies. It's the internal traitor that we have. It's the enemy that's behind the lines, the covert spy that is threatening us. And that is our own sin nature, our own flesh. It's the, it's the spy working behind enemy lines that is the most dangerous. Several years ago, there was a wonderful television series that was put on by PBS called uh, Sidney Riley, Ace of Spies. And I don't know if any of you saw that, but Sidney Riley it was a true uh, character, a true individual who came out of nowhere seemingly from Eastern Europe and uh, went to work for the British Secret Service during the early part of the 20th century. Ian Fleming, who was the creator of the James Bond character and who had worked for the British uh, Secret Service at one time, said, James Bond is just a piece of fluff. Sidney Riley was the real thing. Sidney Riley infiltrated the German high command during World War I. He later infiltrated the highest levels of the Bolshevik Revolution to try to overturn it, and, to, and it is said that the one person that Lenin feared the most was Sidney Riley. Sidney Riley spoke about 20 different languages fluently, and he could move in and out of, of Russia and various countries around there with ease, and he almost led an internal revolt in the early 20s that overthrew the Bolshevik regime. And then they finally caught him and executed him we think, but of course that was all kept hush-hush. But that just shows the power of someone operating behind enemy lines. And that's the problem with the flesh, the sin nature that we all possess, is it manages to convince us that all of our motives are altruistic and they really, they really do uh, impress God and that we're not as bad as the Scripture says that we are. And that if we yield to this temptation, the consequences really aren't that bad and really won't be that devastating. And they convince us that that immediate gratification really isn't that 
that harmful. And so we have this terrible enemy within that is constantly tempting us. It is not a sin to be tempted. I want you to make sure you understand that. Sin does not originate in the sin nature. We talked about this on Sunday morning. Here's your body. Two arms coming down. Here's your chest. Here's your head up here. And your body and your flesh, you have a sin nature. That sin nature is constantly tempting your volition up here in your soul, positive or negative. And as long as you remain positive to doctrine and applying doctrine, then you can easily resist the temptation, the lure, the bait that is set for you by the sin nature. But the minute you begin to find it attractive and to put your focus on that bait and to look at it as Eve looked at that apple and I mean, the apple looked at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she said she said that it, it, it looked good to her. It was that lust of the eyes that she began to be attracted to that fruit and she put her focus on that and it was then that she began to, to yield and that's when you have sin is when your sin nature goes negative and at that moment uh, you, you decide to sin. It's at that point, it is the volition that causes you to sin and sin originates with the volition and once you go negative to God's Word and you yield to temptation, then the sin nature is in control of your life and in your thought and the, as a believer, the only way out is First John 1 John 1.9 to confess your sins and God forgives you and cleanses you and you can then move forward in the spiritual life. Now, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted specifically by the devil, Satan, the number one enemy. Jesus has the high commander of the enemy forces paying particular attention to him. And it comes about at the end of 40 days and 40 nights when Jesus had fasted. And now he was beginning to be hungry. I don't know if any of you have ever fasted. I haven't fasted for more than three or four days. I don't do that regularly. That's not an indication of something you should do. I was on, a, on an outward bound type of program out in the uh, upper peninsula of, of uh, Michigan about 18 years ago. And that was part of the the program, and at the end of two weeks, backpacking when you're really starving to death because you haven't been eating a lot of food, then you're stuck out on a beach situation on Lake Superior, and you have to spend four, have a four-day solo when you don't have any food because the bears roam around in the woods there, and those if you have food, they'll smell the food, and they'll come and get it, and you don't want to wake up in the morning with a bear inside of your tent or sleeping bag. So we didn't have any food. And after about two days, your hunger, your desire for food begins to diminish. Two to three days, your, your desire for food will, will gradually wane until it's gone. And I've never gone 40 days, but I have read and been told that if you go to 35 to 40 days, that it's about in that time period that your body kicks back in and says, okay, it's now you have to eat. If you don't eat now, you will starve and you will die. It's time to eat. So you can go 40 days without eating, but at that end, you start becoming ravenous. And so Jesus is not only tired, 
He's been out in the wilderness. He's been alone. He's at a time when he is physically weak. A time when it's very easy. We know that when we're tired and when we're hungry, how easy it is for us to give in to all sorts of temptation. We become short-tempered. We become irritable. We have all sorts of problems. And the Lord is in a status of extreme physical weakness. And the tempter came to him, verse 3, and says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Satan is appealing to him to to solve his problem of hunger in an illegitimate way, to use his power apart from God's plan. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus focuses back on doctrine and he rebuts the temptation by using Scripture and applying doctrine. So that's point number one. If we are going to uh, not succumb to temptation, if we are going to resist, if we are going to persist, endure in times of testing, then we do it by means of the Word of God. That is our power through God the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus is under the filling of the Holy Spirit. He's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And under the filling of the Holy Spirit, He is utilizing the Word of God as His defensive weapon. Just as the rhema, the spoken word, is the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6. That is how it is used. It is a defensive weapon to parry the thrusts of the enemy. It is not an offensive weapon. We do not as believers go out and engage the devil in hand-to-hand combat. You see these silly people in some of these churches who are trying to wrestle the devil to the floor. And I've seen these pastors or ministers or whatever they are throw themselves down the floor acting like they're wrestling the devil or casting the devil out of people and trying to engage the devil in one-on-one combat in an offensive situation. And that's completely contrary to the Word of God. We are to stand fast against the devil. That's the word that's used in Ephesians 6 and in 1 Peter 5 and over and over again. And it is a defensive term. We stand fast on the Word of God and we let God deal with Satan. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He continues to rebuke the devil by quoting Scripture accurately. Then, verse 5, the devil took him into the holy city and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, then of course Satan knew that he was, throw yourself down for it is written. And this time Satan's going to use Scripture, but he's going to take it out of context and try to use it to to, uh, get the Lord to violate his position and submission to the plan of God. And he quotes from Psalm 91, 11-12, He will give His angels charge concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You just go throw yourself off the temple, and it's about four or five hundred feet down to the bottom, where it's covered with, strewn with rocks and boulders. And anybody jumped off of that parapet, they would instantly be killed when they hit the bottom. And so the devil is saying, look, you know the angels aren't going to let that happen. And Jesus' response is, once again, he accurately quotes Scripture. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then for the third test, the devil takes him up to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things will I give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Now, The point is that Satan is baiting a trap. 
here's the trap, here's the bait. Jesus is over here. In hypostatic union, you have the God-man. He is impeccable. He is minus a sin nature. So there is nothing internally in Jesus that attracts him to the bait. Nevertheless, there is a test. There is a temptation. Just because there is not a sin nature here does not mean Jesus is not being tempted. Remember, the Scripture says He was tempted or tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. He's in the same position as the first Adam. The first Adam was created perfect, and He had no sin nature. Adam was minus the sin nature in the garden, yet He fell prey to the test of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Jesus is in the same position as Adam. Jesus is a winner. Adam was a loser. Jesus was successful. Adam was a failure. The result of Adam's sin is the entire human race sinned when Adam sinned and fell into condemnation. And the result of Jesus' victory here is that he exemplifies how the believer in the church age is to have victory in times of testing under the filling of the Holy Spirit and through the use of the Word of God. Let's turn back to our passage in James chapter 1. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. How do you persevere? Filling of the Holy Spirit, application of doctrine. For once he has been approved. And now we come to another important word. Once he has been approved. The word here is dokimos. This is a different kind of test. Dokimos, D-O-K-I-M-O-S. It means to evaluate, to test for the purpose, purposes of approval, as opposed to perosmos, which has to do with an objective test or an internal temptation. This is a test for approval in order to evaluate how much doctrine someone has. That's the issue here. Blessed is a man who persists in the midst of testing, for once he has been approved, once he passes the test, how do you pass the test? By application of doctrine. Once he applies doctrine as the Lord Jesus Christ did, then the result is approval. You get an A-plus on your evaluation. That's what the Lord did. And after the third test, Satan departed. For once he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life. Now this is a, introduces a very important doctrine for the believer. And that is that God has for us what I call contingent blessings in eternity. These are contingent upon your volition. Contingent blessings in eternity. They are totally contingent upon your volition, your decision, number one, to learn doctrine. And number two, to apply doctrine. As you learn and apply doctrine in the midst of tests, one result is maturity. As a result of maturity, then God will distribute to you your contingent
These are blessings that God has decided to give you and set aside for you from eternity past. They are not dependent upon works. They are dependent upon your growth. Because God is not going to bless you beyond, or, or me beyond our capability. God is not going to bless us and distribute these blessings until we've developed the capacity for those blessings. So we learn and apply and we grow to, to maturity. And then we are establishing the basis for these contingent blessings in eternity, which are rewards. Our goal is to grow to spiritual maturity as fast as possible, and that's when the spiritual life really begins. The end of the spiritual life is not to get to maturity. You get to maturity so that you can live the adult spiritual life. See, that's the way it is in the physical realm. The goal in the physical realm, remember when you were about 14 years old and you just couldn't wait till you were treated like an adult and you could make adult decisions and go through life like an adult and you were tired of being treated like a kid? You wanted to grow up. Well, see, that's the issue in the spiritual life. You need to grow up as fast as you can and reach a level of spiritual maturity so that you can live the adult spiritual life because it's in the adult spiritual life is where we glorify God. It is in the adult adult spiritual life that we experience the maximum blessing that God has for us in time. It is in the adult spiritual life that we have our greatest witness in the angelic conflict. It's in the adult spiritual life that we see the greatest uh, demonstration of the power of God in our lives. And we have to grow up as soon as possible. And the only way to do that is through learning and applying doctrine. And that's in James 1, 2 through 4. Endurance is to have its maturing result that we may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And God motivates us with rewards. And these rewards are outlined in the Scriptures as crowns. So now we need to get to the whole doctrine of crowns. And there are two types of crowns that are mentioned in the Scriptures. Doctrine of crowns or rewards. Now, why is this important? It's important for you to understand that everything you decide to do now impacts eternity. You will be in eternity what you choose to do right now. Think about that. Just as in this life, you are now the result of all the decisions you made in the last 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, 70 years for some of you. What you are now is the result of every one of those decisions that you've made for the last so many years. The same thing is true in eternity. The only thing that you're going to take with you when you leave planet Earth When the Lord calls you home and you're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, the only thing that you can take with you is the doctrine that's in your soul and the spiritual maturity that you possess at that time. If you are a spiritual infant, if you've been living in reversionism and as a backslidden Christian, living in carnality for the whole 30, 40, 50 years you're a believer and you've never grown, then when you get to heaven you are still going to be a spiritual infant. You're still going to be in spiritual diapers. You're not going to have any greater capacity to appreciate and to understand your surroundings than somebody who just moments before they died trusted the Lord as their Savior. The only way you can develop capacity to appreciate and understand what's going on in heaven is through learning something. And we're in that training ground right now while we're here on earth. 
And so for those believers who pursue spiritual maturity and spiritual adulthood, for those believers who are witnesses in the angelic conflict, and those believers who pursue and are successful in the spiritual life, there are a variety of crowns that are promised, a variety of rewards. Now, there's two different types of crowns mentioned in the New Testament. The first type, the first word is Stephanos. S-T-E-P-H-A-N-O-S, where we get our proper name, Stephen. The second is the diadema. D-I-A-D-E-M-A. The, the diadema is a royal crown. That's a crown related to royalty and is not the subject of the doctrine of crowns. The doctrine of crowns always uses the term Stephanos. Stephanos is the victor's crown. It's a crown given as, a, as an award for successful achievement, for victory in the Olympic Games, for bravery in, con, in, uh, in combat, or for a place of honor at a feast. The Stephanos was usually a, a wreath made from laurel leaves or olive leaves or oak leaves, something like that, very simple, that was placed upon the head. It's interesting that the crown that was a crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head is a Stephanos. It's a victor's crown. At the time when Satan thought he was administering the greatest defeat to Jesus, God, with a little sense of humor, has a Stephanos of thorns placed on the Lord's head to show that in that time of tremendous suffering, he was being victorious. Mark 15:17 they dressed him up in purple and after weaving a crown of thorns they put it on him. Now, a couple of other verses that you might want to look at where this word is used 1 Corinthians 9:25 and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we that is believers an imperishable Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, Stephanos. So stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 2 Timothy 4.8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, Stephanos, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will, alert, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Also look at 1 Peter 5.4, Revelation 2.10, Revelation 3.11, Revelation 4.4, and 14.14. We'll come back and look at several of these passages again. The diadema is mentioned in Revelation 12.3, 13.1, and 19.12. Point number one. Point number two. Each crown included monetary reward, freedom from taxes. Isn't that great? Makes us wish we had a system like that now. Each crown included monetary reward, freedom from taxes, children educated at public expense, and a statue of the person, the victor, was erected in the public square. The crown is used in the scripture by analogy 
as a symbol for the greatest honors that the Lord can give a victorious believer. A believer who persists and endures in the midst of all testing to, to grow to spiritual maturity and spiritual adulthood. Point number three. To understand the nature of crowns, we must understand the cultural imagery of the games which underlies this metaphor. The believer is compared to an athlete. 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 5. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. In the Greek system, if you violated, if an athlete violated any rules at any time, rules related to training, rules related to diet, rules related to the game itself, if he violated any rule, no matter how minor it was, no matter how irrelevant it might seem, if an athlete violated the least little rule, he was automatically disqualified and not allowed to compete in the games. The rules here are analogous to the mandates for the Christian life. Just as there were rules for the uh, Greek athlete, there are mandates for the Christian life. Don't push that too far. That doesn't mean that if you violate a rule, a mandate in Scripture, that you're disqualified. That's not what I'm saying. But there, the way to recover from that when we do break a rule or violate a mandate or sin is through the use of 1 John 1.9. That's grace. We can recover if we violate any of the rules. For the believer, there is grace, divine forgiveness, and so we can move all forward in our advance towards spiritual maturity, spiritual adulthood, and rewards. Point number four, related to the games, the historical background. The games were well known in the ancient world, and they developed in Greece during the 6th century B.C., Later, under Rome, they never had the same glory that they had in Greece. In fact, in Rome, there was a, an element of brutality that entered into the games that were foreign to the Greeks. Perhaps the most famous games were the Olympian games, but there were also the Isthmian games, which were held on the Isthmus of Corinth, the Pythian games at Delphi, which emphasized musical competition, and the Nemean games at Argos. The games originated with a simple foot race around the stadium, and then later that developed to a double lap. Then they added wrestling, boxing, musical competitions, chariot races, horse races, discus throwing, as well as the javelin. Only freeborn Greeks were eligible to participate. They entered into a rigorous 10-month schedule of training. The Greek word for this is agonizomai, where we get our word agony. Athletes were selected by elimination trials in each town. So they would be from Sparta or Corinth or Athens, and they would have these elimination trials. And all the athletes in town would try out, and then one would be left, and they would be sent to the games. Then they were sent down to, this, to a training site, the gymnasium, where we get our word gymnasium. And they were, first of all, examined by the officials, and they were sworn oath to obey all of the rules. Any violation resulted in immediate disqualification. The athletes were placed on a strict diet of cheese, figs, and dried meats. All alcohol was forbidden, and the athlete could not leave the gymnasium during this period. 
If he did, or if he was caught eating anything other than what was prescribed, he was immediately disqualified. All the athletes participated in group exercise outdoors naked. For the believer, that's analogous to stripping away everything that distracts us from devotion to the Word of God. Each morning there were two trumpet calls. With the first trumpet call, it was a warning call, the athlete's personal trainer began to rub him down with oil and get him ready for the day. When the second trumpet sounded, the beginning of the daily workout schedule began in the exercise square. Usually they would go into the marketplace right in the middle of town and they would all exercise and work out in front of all the, the people coming down to do their marketing and shopping. If any of the athletes missed the trumpet call or they were watched during the day, if anybody sloughed off, if they were supposed to knock out 20 push-ups and they only did 19, they were out of there. They were constantly observed. That's why Paul says in his analogy in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. But there's more. Once the victory was complete, tremendous honors are heaped on the victor, when he returned home. First of all, there was a breach made in the city wall. They just cut out a hole. And they put in a door there and they put the athlete's name over the door. And it was to symbolize the fact that no enemy has the courage to attack our city because we have an athlete of such stature here that we can breach our walls because if you were to invade, uh, we, you, we would be de- you would be defeated because we have such an athlete in our presence. Secondly, the athlete was taken through his gate Put, put on a chariot, and he rode through town in a festal parade. Third, huge amounts of money were given to the victor, and sometimes they were made generals or given other high posts. The worship of the athletes became so extreme that the philosophers complained. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Fourth, a poet was hired to write odes to the athlete's greatness. Fifth, a statute of him was erected in the public square, Sixth, his wife and children were fed at public expense for the rest of their lives. They were put on permanent welfare. That was the highest, not the lowest. And seventh, he was exempt from taxes for the rest of his life. This is the analogy we find in Scripture, which the Bible refers to as entering through the gates of the city in Revelation 22:14. That is the entrance for the victorious believer. As believers, point number... Uh, Where am I? Point number five. As believers, we are not to live our Christian lives aimlessly. The way they boxed in ancient Greece wasn't in the style we're used to today. They would just sort of flail their arms like a windmill at each other. So Paul says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. In ancient Greece... They just flailed at one another. Paul says, but I buffet my body and make it my slave. Self-discipline. Prioritize. Make doctrine the highest priority in your life. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. And the principle here is that rewards are for advances in the spiritual life, and these rewards can be lost. We can 
fall away from grace, which means that we depart from the truth. We can begin living on power of our sin nature and carnality, and we can lose everything we gained. Next Wednesday night, we'll come back and look at the five crowns, our four crowns that are offered in the Bible. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, for the fact that we have an eternity to look forward to, that we are preparing for today, that our life today is not the end, it is simply the beginning, and everything that we do today is for an eternity with you. Father, we look forward to that because whatever crowns, whatever rewards we receive, ultimately are due to your grace and your grace alone. So, Father, now we commit this time to you and pray that you will use these things to motivate us, to encourage us, and remind us of them in the coming days. In Christ's name, amen.